Uh, I'm Sarah Latham, Senior Asthma Nurse from King's College Hospital, and a really warm welcome to today's Ask About Asthma podcast episode on overuse of Saba stroke Sabutamol. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Niall Durrant and Nina Somerville. Could they introduce themselves, please? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Niall. I'm a paediatric doctor working in Epsom and St. Helier hospitals in South London. And I'm Nina Somerville, so I'm the cross-site respiratory matron at Frimley Health. Um, so that's Wexham Park and Frimley Park Hospitals. That's great. Thanks very much. And I think I must say that Niall, who's being modest, has written the most amazing paper on Sabutamol, which um, I'm sure will provide a link. But I learned so much from it, Niall. You're being very modest about that. So there's just a few um, things that we thought we'd all go through today um, in this fairly short session. So um, what the first bit to go through is what are the issues exactly with overuse of Saba Sabutamol? Maybe Niall, we could start with you. Um, sure, thanks, Sarah. Um, <laughs> I hope people will like the paper. Um, as I try, as I tried to put in that paper, I think there's uh, a few significant issues to think about with sabiotamol overuse that have come up over the last, well, really sort of ten to fifteen years, but have become much more, I think, widespread recently. Uh, the first is, um, and most importantly uh, for our listeners, is the association with with worse asthma outcomes. So, uh, it, both in the paediatric and adult population. Uh, there's very good evidence now across lots of international and national trials that the more sabutamol you're using, the worse your outcomes are. And I think the temptation is to assume that that's because you have uh, worse cases of asthma or more sick patients. Um, but actually, if you look at matched populations in uh, very similar uh, westernised healthcare systems, we uh, in the UK have some of the worst uh, asthma outcomes in terms of mort mortality and morbidity. Uh, in in that that kind of group of uh, healthcare systems, and uh, we kind of correspondingly have some of the highest rates of subutamol overuse in in the Western world. Um, and so I think though that uh, association has become much more well known over the last few years, and that's been the sort of main drive behind trying to address subutamol overuse. Thanks very much. That's very succinct, Niall. And um, Nina, what would you like to add? So I would say from as a background, I've um, I've worked in A&E, I've worked in hospital at home teams and I've worked as an asthma nurse specialist kind of more recently. And I think coming from a chronic asthma treatment point of view, it's it's made um, our jobs a lot more difficult because I think, you know, we really focus on the chronic treatment of asthma. And then unfortunately, the salbutamol overuse has led to asthma being seen as an acute condition um whereas those working in asthma and respiratory know that that's not the case and i think we spend a lot of hours of our time trying to undo um those perceptions and i think from like an accident and emergency point of view and hospital at home point of view as well that it's um we're just kind of giving so much salbutamol to these children and it's really impeding them getting better quicker um you know they're not sleeping through the night because they've been woken up um they're not getting back to school um and then, you know, they're suffering the side effects of the medication. So I think it's just stopping them getting um, better, really. Yeah, exactly. it's interesting to get the perspective from, a, from an A&E perspective as well. Did you want to add anything, Niall? Well, I just want to I completely agree with Nina. And I think the um, so I work in Pete's A&E and obviously it's something we see a lot on the acute side. Um, but I also cover pediatric asthma clinics. And so um, I completely agree with Nina that over-reliance on subutamol has led to a real 
sort of focus on the wrong areas and a dangerous assumption that asthma is something that you naturally get attacks and you, you always will be able to rescue with salbutamol and you can give massive doses and it won't cause harm but actually quite apart from the effects that I mentioned before there are clear uh, pharmacological uh, side effects and um, effects of high doses of salbutamol that Nina was alluding to um, as well as some effects that suggest it actually can worsen attacks in, in significant doses. Um, and the other issue is this assumption, as I mentioned, that you will always be able to rescue acute attacks and therefore a lack of focus on controlling chronic asthma. Really, we should be focusing on preventing attacks happening at all. And we should be regarding every asthma attack as a failure of, of control of, the, of asthma, because we should remember that every time a child or an adult has asthma attack, there is a significant chance that that can lead to death. And so really, we want to be really getting away from this reliance on Sabutamol, this focus on it, and thinking much more about how we can control and help patients to control their, their asthma properly. Absolutely right. And I think, as you say, Niall and Nina, we should have a zero tolerance of any asthma attack at all. And I think just briefly, in my experience, um, I have found it quite difficult in terms of uh, education, getting to know what parents and or young people think about managing their own asthma. And I've come across um, parents who've been giving their child, you know, 10 puffs every hour of subutamol overnight. And these are children that I've seen. So, you know, what sort of educator am I, you know, in those cases? And I think when I've challenged the parent in a nice way, you know, diplomatic, and I say, why have you been doing that? They've ended up in hospital with a severe attack. And they say, oh, because that's what they do in A&E. And I really have learned my lesson to really emphasise the thing about getting help, you know, in a timely fashion. I don't know if you've had similar experiences where people that you've tried to explain stuff to, they do their own thing. I think that's that's completely right. And it's something I'm really becoming increasingly aware of. And uh, relating to this, sort of, especially with the 10 plus hourly situation, something I commonly see in a &E is when patients present having been doing that, oh, it's not working. And it's not working for a couple of reasons. It might not work because, as I mentioned, subutamol high doses can actually be um, counter um, counterproductive. But also, if it's a 200 puff inhaler, if you've been using it regularly for the last few months and then you have an attack overnight and you take 10 puffs every hour, there's a decent chance that overnight your inhaler runs out. And there's a real lack of recognition. And I certainly have had patients presenting just as you describe, and they're saying, oh, it's not getting better. They really aren't responding. And I pick up the inhaler and it's completely empty. Yeah, um, and so that dangerous lack of recognition that of and reliance on, oh, this will be fine to keep using the inhaler. Really, we want those patients to be coming in much earlier, to be getting on top of their attack much, much earlier, uh, rather than having to sit at home in that kind of scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've covered reasonably well what the issues are with excessive SABA use. So moving on to talk about what is the new system in our hospitals. So Nina, um, what's the system in your workplace well it's it's quite um it's been quite an exciting day because actually today was the day that we rolled out the new patient information leaflet so it was it was um you know i'd previously worked at um Evelina children's hospital in the community and we'd already phased out the weaning plan so i've moved to a new role and we've been um this has been kind of one of my main goals for the services to remove the weaning plans which we've managed to do today so i think one of the key things is that we've updated the patient information so we've actually given you know I think one of the things that we've been asked is okay if we're removing the weaning plans what's going to replace it because we do need to give people discharge advice so we are basically saying that salbutamol is to be given only when it's needed 
this, the exact same as what their asthma plan does actually say. Yeah. And that they're not, you know, we kind of say six puffs um, and that must last four hours. If six puffs doesn't help or it's not lasting four hours, you are having an attack. You need to come to hospital urgently and you need to follow your emergency plan. So that's our kind of general advice. So we've um, mirrored is actually similar advice. I know lots of different hospitals are doing um, in the hope that it reduces the confusion because um, we do know that people go to different hospitals um, sometimes depending on where they are. Yeah, and, and it is a mystery how and from where the subutamol weaning plans kept in. Niall, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it's really it's funny that you mentioned that because I tried to look into where weaning plans come from uh, a few months back. I did a bit of a, a sort of poll of respiratory clinicians and, and so on, and there is really no evidence where it comes from or no evidence to use it. Um, so I'm glad that we're away from it. I'm really excited to hear that Nina um, that you've done that today because I know myself quite how challenging that can be um, and it's really great to see more and more trusts bringing that on board and focusing on that at that much more individual as needed uh, approach and I know that we're seeing that much more across lots of trusts in London lots of trusts across the south um, and I think that's going to be increasingly helpful as you say where more trusts are using the same protocol, so parents and children will have consistency of approach as they go around the country, um, which is really great. Yeah, I think consistency, particularly with a condition like asthma, is key, isn't it? Because parents and children see so many different healthcare professionals and may get different messages. And well done, Nina. I think so. It's quite a timely uh, chat we're having, isn't it? That's great. Yes. No. It's been, yeah. yeah. It was very. It was very exciting. I think it was actually. I think we've where we are now with um, stopping weaning plans is I think we're kind of out of the early adopters phase and I think because it's kind of gained a lot of momentum I think it, you know in this case people were really accepting of it and they were really excited and they understood why we needed to um, stop the weaning plan so I think getting it in you know getting the guidelines changed the information change and um, there wasn't a lot of resistance with that which I think was really great so I think we have um understood as the kind of paediatric teams that were why we're doing this yeah exactly so so we've got um, a similar system in my hospital at king's um, and we managed to to get rid of the dreaded subutamol weaning plans i can't remember when but some time ago now we've had less success um in a and e and actually that leads me on to the next um sort of area which is how did the, our hospital go about phasing out so I might just say what we did at King's obviously extensive education like I'm sure you've both done um, and it was somehow it was easier to do on the wards and we have been down to A&E a few times but I think some some members of staff still do use that in A&E I'm afraid so we're, we're trying to redouble our efforts to go down to A&E um, you know and spread the word what, what's your experience Niall? Um, well, I think we had so we were very fortunate in um, in a and &E, which I completely agree is an area that uh, a lot of people find a lot challenging. In, in my trust, paediatric department uh, runs paediatric a and &E, so our peds teams are consistent. So we'll have you know if you're working on the ward one day, you'll be working on a and &E the next day. So it's all the same part, the same team, which made it much easier to implement. That's at Saint Helier, so we implemented things there first. We took got one of the paediatric ED consultants on board very early on in the process. Uh, and with his help with Dr. Clark at St. Helier, we managed to get that much more consistently across the team. Once we had that, we found it much easier to transplant to our sister hospital, Epsom, where the A&E model is more traditional and A&E staff were running it. 
because we have that kind of evidence that this is how this can work. But I completely agree. It can be tricky to, to step outside of your own paediatric department and try and get something implemented in a separate department. Education, as you mentioned, was super, super important. But also, I think what was key there, again, was identifying um, key stakeholders and kind of champions for it. So we're getting a couple of key paediatric ED consultants and nurses and saying and getting them on board early. And that really helped us to make that that change um, and only really to say consistent visiting, consistent updates from the motivating side is really key. And then the other side of things, I've, I've removed all of the weaning plans and I keep going back and checking there aren't any around um, just to make it a little bit more difficult to do. Nina. So I, um, I also think when we did this at um, Evelina London, we're quite fortunate that there was quite a robust asthma network kind of going from primary up to tertiary care. So my involvement from being the community asthma nurse, so I um, educated the community team, so it would be the community nurses, school nurses, hospital at home team, but it was also actually remembering primary care and remembering actually a lot of weaning plans were initiated from GP practices if they see anyone with a mild attack. Um, so I really made sure I made an effort to kind of go around to all the practices, getting the messaging sent out, doing teaching, um, kind of we did monthly MDT teaching with each PCN just to make sure that they were also included in this as well because I know sometimes changes we make in hospital doesn't always um, filter down to primary care as um, smoothly and again it was just kind of giving feedback whenever we used to see um, you know if we saw weaning plans being used we would just kind of give feedback and um, let those people know just to kind of get the message out there but I think I'd agree with Niall it's just basically um, persisting it's doing lots of training being really visible um, I agree today I went onto the wards and I just removed the plan I removed the previous plans and I've said just delete it from your shared drives and we've just got them off the trust system so um, hopefully they don't um, get used again. Yeah fantastic yeah and actually we've sort of covered the next session which was um, how to go about making the change including who to involve communications working with ED training and as you mentioned very importantly Nina primary care and then education of staff and families. We've sort of covered that already. We've already um, covered how difficult it can be to educate families as well. But I think the more the word is spread, obviously, the more families will see that that's the way it's done now, you know, not relying um, on a sub-usable weaning plan. Now you've got your hand up. I just, you, want, I just wanted to say that to Nina, that's fantastic, because actually, ironically, it obviously it depends on where you have team members. For us, A&E obviously wasn't as much of a challenge um, as it might be in other trusts, but primary care has been our real challenge in terms of accessing and um, getting getting that education, that message out to, because we we don't necessarily have a, a community asthma nurse that we've been able to link in with um, in the same way. And so we have been doing a lot of similar stuff in terms of monthly teaching and going into our primary care needs and so on. Needs. But I'm aware that I think that's the area that left for us that um, we're still really trying to work on in terms of getting a message out there and I completely agree that that's where it's really important to engage uh, early and that's been a big learning point for, for us is uh, I think we we can do more to engage primary care with that kind of that plan early on. Yeah I would really agree with that Niall and we haven't done much in that regard so well done. Did you want to add anything else Nina? I was, I was just going to say as well actually I think one of the most powerful um, advocates I have, I've had for removing the weaning plans I think you know, really educating the families and kind of going through and making them more aware of the side effects and why it's dangerous. I've actually found they've been my 
biggest advocates and I've, ha I've had patients tell me, oh, I was given a weaning plan, but I told them, no, I only give, you know, take my salbutamol when it's needed. Mm. Um, so that's been really great as well, just for a lot of the kind of long term patients. They've really um, been able to advocate for themselves, which was really um, nice to see. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think to close, um, what, what lessons do we think we've learned about, you know, what went well and what, what didn't go so well? We sort of alluded to some things as we've been going along, but are there any sort of concluding statements that either of you would like to make? And I'll have a think as well. I think I think the big takeaway for me was um, being really clear on your your reasons early on and making sure you've got that ability to kind of get that educational message across um, because that's kind of you know so key to getting all the professionals and families on board and being able to make sure you you have all the reasons and the reasons that are going to be relevant to those people. So different reasons, different you know, relevant to different people for families and patients. It might be about controlling their symptoms and understanding that attacks can be prevented. Um, for healthcare professionals, it might be more of the worries about how they're going to implement the change or how that's going to impact on their services. Um, and so I think finding the right finding the right reason and the right why for each person was really key, as well as identifying those kind of key people really early. I do want to add one last kind of thing that um, one reason I think that we haven't really touched upon, but that's come up and is increasingly important to a lot of people recently, I think, which is the environmental side of things. So um, Ventolin, which is the type of subject one inhaler most pediatric patients tend to be on, um, is one of the most polluting inhalers that we have in terms of its proportion of a particular type of gases that it releases as it uses a propellant. There are lower, um, lower emission inhalers, which we can switch to, but actually one of the biggest things we could do in terms of reducing uh, the carbon emissions, the carbon footprint of asthma care would be to move away from subutamol abuse as well. So as well as all of the other reasons, it would be better for all of our, all of our patients long, in the long term in terms of reducing the impact of, um, of healthcare on, on the environment. Yeah. Can I just make a quick, um, slightly different point about that? So at King's, we are starting um, a piece of work on asking parents of children with asthma to bring in their, their used inhalers, you know, when they're empty. And we've got a system, or we will have a system of recycling them. For um, I can give you more information, I can provide more information once I know it, but it's quite amazing because at the moment people just, I think, give the canisters back to pharmacy and I think they're just incinerated. Or they go to landfill. So, oh, there's a huge amount of them will end up in landfill. I agree. Yeah, I think that's exactly, fantastic yeah. to hear. Yeah. So, but we haven't started it yet. But that's you know an exciting thing. Nina, what did you want to um, comment on? I was just thinking as well because I know obviously um, we all work in pediatrics and children are kind of our main focus. But I think if we're thinking, obviously these children become adults and then they do eventually have to pay for their prescriptions and. Unfortunately, asthma medications aren't on the exemption list. So actually, if we focus more on the chronic management, we, we will see the number of salbutamol prescriptions decrease, hopefully, which actually means it's it's um, going to be more cost effective for that person. Because um, we know if their asthma is poorly controlled, they're going to be using a lot more salbutamol inhalers, which is going to be more um, expensive for them. So I think focusing on you know taking their chronic treatment and you know that's a smaller amount of inhalers. I think that's an, another kind of way we can incentivise people um, to focus on the the ongoing chronic management of their asthma and not just treating it episodically. 
Yeah, you absolutely will. And I completely agree. And what's nice to, just to back that up is that I know some trusts, um, particularly uh, I think the Evelina in London and so on, uh, I don't think they've released all their, this, this paper yet, but they are, they've been looking at the amount of subbies more used just after switching to this as needed plan. Um, yeah. So without any other particular intervention about chronicity, which obviously are also super important, they've shown a significant reduction in the amount of subbies more people are using, which just without a change in their outcomes, we've shown similar uh, no, actually improvements in our asthma outcomes with our own studies locally. And so we are showing that actually your asthma outcomes will be better, but Andy, they will use less subutamol. So we were definitely going, we were overdosing patients who didn't need it before um, and potentially missing one of those ones who were already sick. So yeah, we will cut down on the amount used, which would be great for the environment, great, as you mentioned, for, for the costs. Um, and yeah, and that's, I think that's really important for, for all those reasons. I think it's just been it's been um it's been a really nice time working um in paediatric asthma because I think we've we all work in different areas we sort of know each other um through the networks but I think we've all really kind of kept a strong consistent message which I think has been kind of the the ultimate success of um removing the weaning plans. Yeah, so hopefully we are seeing the back of the subutin bottle weaning plans. Um, and I think so that will bring today's um, episode to a close. Thank you for listening. And please do visit the Ask About Asthma webpage for more videos, podcasts, and to view the full schedule for the week. So from Niall, Nina, and myself, um, many thanks for listening and goodbye.